TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Um, 45 minutes, okay? Sure. Okay, great. So I think a half an hour was what I was told, but is it, it was 11 30 right to now? 40, but Wait, I. What time is it right now? It's 11. It's 11. Is that okay? Um, I think, let's do, let's do 30 because I have to be. That's what I was. That's what okay. I was told in my schedule. Okay. Yeah. All right. So then I might have to do a little bit less. Okay. We'll do what we can. Okay. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from DesignObserver.com. On this episode, Debbie talks with Elizabeth Gilbert, the author of Eat, Pray, Love, about the love of her life and her latest book, City of Girls. You know, when I think about the joy that writing has brought me, what I think about are those hours of communion, engaged with a mystery, trying to make something out of nothing. Here's Debbie first with a word from our sponsors, then with her conversation with Elizabeth Gilbert. Design Matters is supported by some wonderful patrons, Adobe and Wix.com. Are you an introvert, an extrovert, or both? I think the human desire for self-knowledge is universal. I mean, who can't get enough of personality tests like Myers-Briggs or the Proust questionnaire? Well, now there's a new test in town that has been created especially for creative people. It's called Creative Types. It is the brainchild of the Adobe Create team. It's really fun, and it's absolutely free. The Creative Types test is an exploration of the many faces of the creative personality. Grounded in decades of psychological research, the test assesses your basic habits and tendencies. It will help you understand how you think, how you act, and how you see the world in an effort to help you better understand who you are as a creative individual. Take the test and you will also discover which one of eight fascinating creative types you are. You'll learn about your personal strengths and challenges, even your ideal collaborators. Everyone has a creative type. What's yours? Go to mycreativetype.com and you can discover your personal creative personality. Support for Design Matters is also provided by Wix.com, which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites 
back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video, and parallax scrolling effects. You even have serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? Elizabeth, after your 2015 book, Big Magic, came out, you told Vogue magazine that you have the soul of a very serious writer and the personality of a flight attendant or an aerobics instructor. (laughs) So tell us about the range of your personalities. I know, because I, I really, oh, God, I really should be just teaching a Zumba class or something. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm such an enthusiast, and I think and I'm such an extrovert, and I think those two things are not necessarily typical of people who become writers. I think one of the reasons people become writers is so that they don't have to engage with other humans, uh, or that they can engage from a really safe distance, um, which would be you know, me in my studio, you on the other side of the country reading my book two years later, you know, but that's just not how I am. I like to roll around in the world. And that's partially why I wrote Big Magic is sort of as that that aerobics instructor in me wanting to cheer everybody on and make sure that they get their creativity squats in or whatever. It's so funny. I was talking to my therapist recently. I'm dating a, a writer and she's so prolific on the page. And I was talking to my therapist about how sometimes it can be hard to talk about feelings with her. And she said to me, Debbie, that's why she's a writer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, she's much more typically uh, the the normal characteristics for a writer than me. I don't know how I got this strange combo of being an introvert trapped in an extrovert's body, but that's kind of how it works. But I do love the best part of my life is every couple of years when I just disconnect from everybody and I go off always alone and spend my time, you know, for, for a couple of months with the book and only talk to my book. And that's kind of the happiest that I can ever be, actually. You were born and raised in Connecticut and have said this about your childhood. I know every inch of fear from head to toe. I've been a frightened person my entire life. I was born terrified. My earliest memories are of fear, as are pretty much all the memories that come after my earliest memories. Elizabeth, where did all this fear come from? I don't know where anything that is us comes from. I mean, I've certainly sat in therapist's office, spent a lot of money on that question. As I'm hearing you read it and saying I was born afraid, I'm like, is that true? I thought so, but maybe, I, I don't know. I have, I'm hypersensitive. And I think part of it was that I grew up in a family of super high achievers where everybody appeared to me. This may not have been what, what I was actually, what was actually true, but they appeared to me to be terrifyingly competent. Competence was something that was really valued in my family. My mom grew up on a farm in Minnesota and was from a very early age, you know, expected to run the farm, raise raise her younger brothers and sisters, know how to, you were expected to know how to do everything 
almost before you knew how to do it. Um, you know, you were given a very short window of time in which to master something. So I think I, I grew up with a, an anxiety around that. Like, I'm, the, I'm only four. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to shingle a barn yet. You know? <laughs> well, you should. You know, we knew how to do it when we were your age. So, so I think there was a little bit of that, just this, this expectation that you were supposed to have competency already. In a recent interview with Chris Anderson of TED, you state that fear is a part of our makeup. It's something that's inherent in us, a protective device, and that your experience with fear is to permit it to exist and then how to figure out how to work with it. And that working with fear is what courage is. Yeah, I think we live in a culture where we're constantly being told not to be afraid and that the ultimate champions of the culture advertise this sort of fearlessness as the aspiration. But I don't, it's not anything I would ever want to be. Um, I've known a couple fearless people and they were sociopaths. <laughs> and there's something, you look in their eyes and there's something off. There's something missing and they're a danger to themselves and to others. And so for me, it's not about kicking fear in the ass or showing it who's boss or dominating it. You know, anytime I've ever gone head to head against fear where I try to fight it and win, it wins because it's it will then show you who is really boss. You know, you go up against it and it will double down. And so the way that I've learned to kind of game it is through, I don't think that the opposite of fear is 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 bravery. I think the opposite of fear is empathy. Mm. And um, so approaching myself and fear with a sense of tremendous empathy, saying, look, I understand you're I understand that you're afraid. And I know that I know that I cannot tell you what the outcome of this is going to be. You know, that's why creativity and fear are always so linked, is that creativity demands that you step into a field where you cannot know what the outcome is going to be. And fear is genetically programmed to forbid you from ever doing that because fear believes that if it doesn't know what the outcome is, it will surely end in your own death. You know, and, it, and it's like, so that's yeah. why it feels so scary to yeah, create. That's the why, part of our instincts. Yeah. It's like, I don't know what this is. I don't know how this ends. Stop, shut it down. And that's why even doing something as simple as sitting down and trying to write a poem can feel like terrifying because your fear is like, this will end in death. And I, I, so I have to have these very loving conversations with fear where I say, you know, yet, I have yet to kill anyone or myself with my poetry. It's not great, but it probably won't end in death. I know you're frightened, but we're doing this thing anyway. And it's a gentle kind of mothering way to approach it rather than this very bullying way that I feel like we're, we're constantly being modeled in this culture. Yeah. I had a student once when I asked him what was the worst thing he thought could possibly happen if he tried this thing and failed was that he would die of heartbreak. Yeah, it feels like that. Right. And instead of saying, that's stupid, that's ridiculous, why aren't you better, why aren't you braver, or trying to throw it away, start there, you know, start there and meet with a sense of, the only word I can use, it's not even self-love, because I think that's a tall order for most of us. I would say a sense of, of great friendliness, you know, toward yourself of like, okay, pal, I see, I know, it's okay, we're going to do it. No one's dying, but let's go. You've wanted to be a writer your whole life. I read that you took vows to be a writer as a writer and simply vowed to the universe that you would write forever, regardless of the result. You promised that you would try to be brave about it and grateful and as uncomplaining as you could possibly be. And you didn't ask for external rewards for your devotion. You just wanted to spend the rest of your life as near to writing as possible. Mm -hmm. And so you were willing to make whatever arrangements needed to be made in order to get by. 
How old were you when you took these vows and what arrangements were you referring to? I was 16 and I remember it very clearly. And I I had been told recently by an English teacher, um, you know, you're a good writer, but unfortunately you'll never um, be able to have any success because you didn't have an unhappy enough childhood. One of my early introductions to the stereotype of the this idea that, that creativity can only be born of of woe and misery. Also, he didn't know a thing about my childhood. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? You like, don't even know what you're doing. a lot of research. Yeah, like, it wasn't perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's like, take it easy, pal. It may look, you know, it may look away. Um, but you know, more to the point, it was that the there were, I could feel a kind of tension of a disapproval of people saying it's time to put away your childish things, you know, which is often how creativity dies, is that there's something that you love doing. And because you cannot instantly and convincingly answer the question of how you're going to monetize it, how you're going to be successful at it, how is this going to provide for you? There's an anxiety that other people have about your creativity that then you take in, you know, and then you let that anxiety, which you didn't which you learned. It's not innate. <laughs> you learned it because you saw, the, yeah. you saw the scared looks on everyone's faces when you said that you wanted to be a singer. <laughs> yeah, no, you, know, you wrote like, a whole Whoa, list how of- are you going to, that sounds, blah, 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 you know, and, and, and so I felt that there was something I needed to do to combat that um, and to just establish instantly, like, no, this is, this is my priority. This is what I'm doing. And the, the arrangements that I meant were, I will take care of myself. What I meant by that was I will not ask my creativity to provide for me in the world. I will provide for it. I will provide for it. And that meant I'm willing to be a waitress. I'm willing to be a bartender. I'm willing to be a babysitter. I'm willing to not have a lot of money. I'm willing to live in crummy apartments. I'm willing to be the one laboring on behalf of this thing rather than the expectation that this thing must you know, bring in the money for me. Because I think that's another way creativity dies is that people once it's not monetized, they stop doing it, you know? And so I was like, well, look, I'll be my own sugar daddy. I mean, I won't be an extravagant sugar daddy because I'm a bartender, (laughs) but I will be my own studio wife. You know, I think especially for women, there's always this resentment that the history of art is filled with men who had women who took care of them. And so they were able to produce work because they had women who cooked and cleaned and did everything and, and handled the world so that the men could live in a womb of creativity. And we can be resentful about that, or we can become our own studio wives. And, um, and I decided I'll do that. I'll do all that stuff so that the artist can exist as free as possible from worrying about that. So it's almost like a bifurcation of the self, the one who's going to be out there being the mule, working hard for the one who gets to be the artist. And it's interesting that you say that this teacher of yours felt that you hadn't suffered quite enough because you had written a whole list of questions that people had challenged you with Mm. when you told them that you wanted to be a writer. Aren't you afraid you're never going to have any success? Aren't you afraid the humiliation of rejection will kill you? Aren't you afraid that you're going to work your whole life at this craft and nothing's ever going to come of it and you're going to die on a scrap heap of broken dreams with your mouth filled with the bitter ash of failure. Yeah. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Did you be like, whatever? Well, I mean, look, those are not insignificant concerns and I don't want to, I don't want to throw them away too lightly because people can be really hurt and, you know, blocked by, by that stuff. But there's a prayer that I love that's called the Celtic prayer of approach. And it's an ancient Celtic prayer that was meant to be used when you are approaching a new colony, a new civilization, a new village, you know, some, some, somebody who you don't know. This is the, the spirit. But I think that it's actually the most beautiful prayer of approach when you're approaching your work. 
um, or whatever it is that you're creating. And it can also work in relationships. And I'll see if I can get it right. I think I've got it. But it says, um, I will drink from your well. I will honor your gods. I bring an undefended heart to our meeting place. I will not negotiate by withholding. I have no cherished outcome. I am not subject to disappointment. Mm. So begin your work with that prayer. I have no cherished outcome. I am not subject to disappointment. And then it doesn't matter. The work itself becomes its own reward. What you're doing is is something so much more important than what the result of it is. And and I can say that, and I know it might be that people might say easy for you to say, you're a really successful writer, but, but you've I wasn't one. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't one when I was 16. It wasn't easy to say, but it was easy to say. I would say, yes, it's always been easy for me to say that because that is truly what I believe. And, and let me tell you, it had better be that the work itself is its own reward because the outcome, even if it's great, is very short, even a brilliant outcome you know, if I got all the satisfaction that I get from my books based on a great review in the New York Times, by the next day, that's gone. Why is that? Well, because the review's gone and it's it was on a Tuesday morning and now it's Wednesday. It's over. You know, everyone who's ever won an Oscar almost will say like, it was so exciting. And then I walked off stage. It was like, oh, that's over. So we metabolize that success oh, that's super over. fast. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's gone. And, but, but. You know, when I think about the joy that writing has brought me, what I think about are those hours of communion where I've gotten to spend engaged with a mystery, trying to make something out of nothing. That's wonderful. The, the outcomes, I mean, I'm delighted and so grateful for the outcomes, but but they pass so quickly, you know, and people will say, God, I spent three, four, five years working on this book, and then it came out, and it was only out for a week, and then it was in the remainder pile two months later, and I'm like... You had three years where you got to be with this project. That was what you got. That's the salad days. The salad days isn't where it's sitting on the Barnes & Noble shelf. It can't be. It's never going to satisfy you. You got to, not had to, spend five years working on this book. You got to. There's no higher thing you can do with your time than that. Speaking of time, you just spoke at the How Conference. I was in the audience listening and trying to hold myself back from crying, not because I didn't want to cry, but because I thought I might make too much noise while doing it and didn't want to be disruptive. I got you. I got you. Um, I've spent a lot of time in the back of rooms for that very, that very problem. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, because we don't have a lot of time together, I, I'd really like to talk to you a little bit about what it means to show up to be creative and you shared a story of, of stalking your mentor back when you were quite young mm -hmm. and her asking you a question that really changed the course of your life. And I believe probably changed the course of quite a lot of lives in today's audience. Mm. So can you share that question with us? The question she asked me, and this was back when I was um, in my 20s, living in the East Village, working three jobs, trying to be a writer, getting nothing but rejection letters, and not actually producing very much writing. Um, although I was living the life of a young writer, what I was actually really doing was a lot of other stuff beyond that. And she, she was an older woman and she said, and she was an artist. And she said to me one day when I was complaining about not having any time to work, what are you willing to give up to have the life you keep pretending you want? And as I said on stage today, it was that word pretending that was so lacerating because I didn't want to be told that I was pretending at being a writer. I wanted to be told that I was noble and that I was writing, but I wasn't writing. And, and what she said was, I see your time going into everything except this thing that you claim is the most important thing in your life. And, you know, as you sit in that question yourself, remember, like, 
what is the most important thing in your life is actually entirely up to you, you know? So it doesn't have to be a creative project. It can be a human being. It can be somebody in your life who you get to decide, this is what matters to me. This is who matters to me. And what are you willing to give up to be able to give more of your time to that thing? You talked about three ingredients to help fuel being the most creative person you could possibly be. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what those are? Yeah, I, I define them, um, not just the most creative person, but to be relaxed within your creativity. Mm, yes. Because I think that, you know, when we when we start thinking like, I want to produce more, I want to create more, there, you know, you get that striving face <laughs> and the neck tendons the come furrow, out. The furrow. And the jaw. And I always <laughs> want to say to people, you know, you don't need those neck tendons to actually create. Like, you know, it might be a little better. <laughs> if it, we're turtle Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, a yoga teacher once who said to me when I was stretching my hamstrings, you don't need your jaw to stretch your hamstrings. But there is this sort of tense feeling that you can get of like, okay, I got to go in there and for me, the best creativity comes when you're at your most relaxed. And so the three things that I think you need in order to create a field of relaxation or, or peace around you in order to create are um, priorities, boundaries, and mysticism. So priorities is identifying what matters to you, and it cannot be everything. It can only be a couple things, a couple people, and everything else. It's like, nope, not my priority. <laughs> Don't care. Um, and the second thing is is boundaries, um, which is can only be established once you know what your priorities are. And a boundary is a circle that you draw around something to say that it is sacred. And that boundary, that boundary can even be around you yourself, your very own life, you. You draw a circle around yourself and say, this is sacred, the thing that's in here. How do you protect your own boundaries given how honest and transparent and um, clear you are with your fans and and the public. Well, you just saw me do it. You said we're doing a forty minute interview, and I said no, we're doing a thirty minute interview. <laughs> Fair um, and you said well forty, and I said no thirty. You did, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think you felt like I was attacking you. I don't feel like you felt like it was violent. It was just me knowing, no, this is what I have today to offer you, and you might want more but I don't have more for you. And and that's something that I, I think it's taken a certain amount of age for me to realize that people don't get what they want from you just because they want it. They get what they get from you because you have it. And beyond that, you can't. And And I don't even apologize for it anymore. It's just that I know that I have this one life that's got a limited amount of energy. I know what my day looks like, and this is what I've got for you. And I'm when in the course of these 30 minutes, I'm going to give you everything I have. And then after that, I'm going to be like, bye. And that's how it's going to go. Um, so you actually got to see it in practice. <laughs> and tell us about the third ingredient. Mysticism is the notion that creativity, my definition of creativity, is that it's it's a human being's labor meeting the mysterious. So it's a human being encountering the mysterious and adding their labor to it. I believe that ideas want to be born. I believe that ideas have consciousness, that they circle the earth formlessly looking for human beings to collaborate with, to bring them into being. Um, There's no other species in the world that can collaborate with ideas the way we do. They like playing with us. And to be able to hear them and respond to them means that you have to have a certain amount of of ease in your life, which means that you have to have your priorities straight and you got to have your boundaries and then you'll have enough time and energy to be able to hear the whisper of the idea when it comes to you. But that idea, I believe, is magic. And I believe you you approach it as you would approach 
the supernatural, the mysterious, and the divine. Yeah, you know, you just, you become a servant to that mothership, whatever it might be, <laughs> and you devote your life to service to it rather than thinking that it's coming from you and that it's all about your ego. It's not. You're a servant to the mystery. How are you doing after the very mystical and extraordinary 24 months you've just had? It depends on the moment. Um, I think you're referring to my my partner, Rhea's death. Um, so uh, the most important, the biggest priority person in my life um, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. God, it was three years ago today that she, not three years ago this month that she was diagnosed. And 2016. Yeah, and I, and I walked through that journey with her at her side. And you blew up your whole life. To I be did. Able to do I did that. it in a heartbeat and I would, I would do it again. It was very clear in that moment that that's what had to happen. And I went to be with her as her, as her partner and as her caregiver. And um, we had 18 months together, um, which were beautiful and, and, magical and harrowing and horrible. And so she died about a year and a half ago. I'm I'm doing a lot better than I would have been doing had I not blown up my life to go be with her. That, I can tell you, without a doubt, would have been a much bigger tragedy. I feel tremendously proud that we did that, that we loved each other, that we spent that time together. And, um, and there's that pride and that sense of having something I came here to do. One of the things I came here on earth to do was to love Rhea and to, and to walk her to the edge of that river. And, and it was harrowing and we did it. And I'm proud of her and, and I'm proud of our love that doesn't go anywhere despite the fact that she's not here. It was an instant realization when you heard her diagnosis that she was the love of your life? Not instant, but nearly. Again, I've spent so much of my life just following orders. You know, I, I mean, it, was a, it wasn't a decision. It was, it was me agreeing to the command that I was given, which was, this is what has to happen now. What is the biggest thing she taught you? Mercy. She was badass and she was tough as nails. She was a former junkie and a former heroin speedball junkie who had survived the Lower East Side of New York City as a drug addict for years and had finally gotten clean and was clean for 19 years. And part of her sobriety was the recognition of two things. One is the mercy that she had received from people who should have never forgiven her for the truly horrible things that she did when she was a drug addict. And she had to go to those people and ask for their forgiveness. And many, not all, but many of them forgave her. And she, her heart was so broken open by that. She said, these are people who should cross the street when they see me coming. And they took me back into their lives and back into their homes. And having experienced that, I can never withhold that from anyone. And I saw her forgive people for the most outrageous offenses and I'm a bit of a perfectionist so I can be very unforgiving and and I watched her walk through things in relationships where I would like God oh, I would shut the door on that person so hard and Raya was like how how can I and she also knew what it was like to be a bad person who had a good person trapped inside them that couldn't get out and so she saw that in people no matter how awful they were behaving she could see that it wasn't their true nature. And it's not that she let anyone run over her. She had impeccable boundaries, but judged nobody, judged nobody, kept her heart open to everyone. And I remember saying to her one time, is there anyone in this world who you would not be willing to sit alone in a room at a table across from and talk to? And she was like, no, why would I be unwilling to talk to anybody? And I was like, good Lord, I have a list as long as my arm of people who I never would want to have to be face-to-face with. And, and she was like, I'll, I'll sit in, in conversation with anyone. So I learned that sort of, that openness and, um, 
it's not, mercy's not weak, it's not soft, it requires a titanium spine, and she had one. But she also had a heart that was always willing to go back into the arena with somebody and, and, and see if it could work it out. It was beautiful to see. Elizabeth, you have a brand new book that is about to come out, and it's called City of Girls. And it's been described as a very fun, lighthearted book. I actually think it's a Trojan lighthearted book. You got it. Um, <laughs> and, and it's interesting that mm. one of my favorite passages in the book is about mercy. Can I just say how much I love the expression Trojan lighthearted book? I'm, if, with your permission, that's I've been calling it a bran muffin disguised as a as a cupcake. No, it's a Trojan. It's a Trojan lighthearted. <laughs> There's book. more substance in there than than you might think. There's <laughs> so much longing and shame and sadness and mercy, and this is one of my favorite favorite paragraphs. And I'm going to ask you to read something, but this is one thing I wanted to read. In that moment, I felt overcome by a sense of mercy not only for Frank, but also for that younger version of myself. I even felt mercy for Walter with all his pride and condemnation, how humiliated Walter must have felt by me and how dreadful it must have been for him to feel exposed like that in front of someone he considered a subordinate and Walter considered everyone a subordinate, how angry he must have been to have to clean up my mess in the middle of the night. Then my mercy swelled, and for just a moment, I felt mercy for everyone who has ever gotten involved in an impossibly messy story, all those predicaments that we humans find ourselves in, predicaments that we never see coming, do not know how to handle, and then cannot fix. Yeah. It's a beautiful book. Thank you, sweetheart. It is so much more than a lighthearted romp, as people are saying. This is a book that um, I find interesting because you've talked about how this is a book that came from an idea that you had of wanting to write a book about women who are not traumatized by sex, especially since it is very difficult to find that kind of story anywhere in literature. Not traumatized isn't quite, I may have said that in a quote, but that's not what I meant. I meant not ruined. Okay. Um, We can survive our trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and the story of women and sex is often a story of, of ruination. Ruin. Yeah, Kester and, Prynne um, and yeah, and even and now, as much as I as much as I love and as much as we need and as far overdue as the Me Too movement is, there's still a storyline under there that I sense, which is that you know women will be destroyed, and it's not necessarily been my experience. We can make catastrophic mistakes. Terrible things can happen to us. We can not only endure them, but survive them and allow them to shape us into something very interesting in the alchemy of of our growth. And I wanted to tell that story um, because I think that's a more powerful story. And it is a powerful story. Your main character, Vivian, in a letter states the following. Sex is so often a cheat, a shortcut of intimacy, a way to skip over knowing somebody's heart by knowing instead their mere body. And she spends a lot of her life doing that cheat. <laughs> she does. I find it so interesting that Vivian was so interested in sex and yet ultimately found love and sex to be very different things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also found this story, you know, as I'm talking about it, I'm saying it's a story about sex and about women and about men. You know, truly by the end of the of the last pages of the book, I would hope that everybody would see what it really is, which is even more, it's a story about female friendship yes. um, because the the relationships that end up sustaining her and the way that we are romantically told that our romantic partner must, the relationships that sustain her for her entire life are her friendships and, and the friendship that she offers um, 
at the end of the book is is the greatest gift I think that a, a woman can give to another woman. So yeah, there's uh, the primary relationship in her life um, are those friends. I want to be respectful of your time. <laughs> I would um, love for you to read one passage that sure. I've chosen um, because in many ways I feel like it really talks about what the soul of the book is about. Yeah. Um, and if you would read that, I would yeah, appreciate I would be it very happy much. To. Thank you. And if you're wondering whether I ever had crises of conscience about my promiscuity, I can honestly tell you no. I did believe that my behavior made me unusual because it didn't seem to match the behavior of other women, but I didn't believe that it made me bad. I used to think that I was bad, mind you. During the dry years of the war, I still carried such a burden of shame about the incident with Edna Parker Watson, and the words, dirty little whore, never fully left my consciousness. But by the time the war ended, I was finished with all that. I think it had something to do with my brother being killed, and the painful belief that Walter had died without ever having enjoyed his life. The war had invested me with an understanding that life is both dangerous and fleeting, and thus there is no point in denying yourself pleasure or adventure while you are here. I could have spent the rest of my life trying to prove that I was a good girl, but that would have been unfaithful to who I really was. I believed that I was a good person, if not a good girl. But my appetites were what they were, so I gave up on the idea of denying myself what I truly wanted. Then I sought ways to delight myself. As long as I stayed away from married men, I felt that I was doing no harm. Anyway, at some point in a woman's life, she just gets tired of being ashamed all the time. After that, she is free to become whoever she truly is. Elizabeth Gilbert, thank you so much for bringing so much joy and clarity to the world with your work. And thank you for joining me today at the How Conference for this very special live episode of Design Matters. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Elizabeth Gilbert's new book is titled City of Girls, and you could read much more about her on her website, elizabethgilbert.com. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.